listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. Mark chapter 10. If you're using a Bible that's in the chair in front of you in the rack there, you can find that on page 846. We're continuing our trek through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be tackling a a larger passage today. We're going to finish up uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, and then uh, work our way all the way through the end of chapter chapter 10. And as you're finding Mark chapter 10, um, and if you're using one of those Bibles, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, I know it was just 10 seconds ago, but I can't remember whether I said it. If you're using one of the Bibles in the in the chair in front of you, you can find that on page 846. Did I just say that? Okay, all right. I'm getting old. In fact, it's getting harder to get up on the stage, um, so I'm going to have to start using the stairs. But listen, as you're finding, <laughs> as you're finding Mark chapter 10, let me just throw on my, my, little, uh, my, my little enthusiasm for the Pure in Heart conference that, that Will and Gina just promoted. And if you didn't get the point uh, that Gina was saying is that register now, moms, because um, this is a national conference. People will be coming in from all over the southeast, and I think it's up on the website, and there's already people registering for it. And so um, certainly we want to bless our community and our region, but we, we also... Um, It'd be like inviting people over to your house for dinner and then not (laughs) then like your kids have to go outside in the front yard. And so we would love for you to come to this and to be part of this. So register now. You go to the pureinheartconference.com website, moms, daughters, come pray for this volunteer. Yeah, really looking, really looking forward to this. All right, well, let's get right into it. We've got a a long passage to tackle today and uh, we're just going to work our way through it. Because it's a longer passage, I'm not going to read the whole thing and then go back and comment. We're just going to read and comment along the way. And in this text is the verse that I think is the high point, the center of all of the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, I think it's, it's really the center of the whole Bible, the, the point, the, the one verse that Jesus speaks that we'll read in just a moment. The truth around that really forms really the, the crux of the message of the gospel and of the, of the whole Bible. And so today we're just going to look at the implications of Jesus being our ransom. And then we're going to see the contrast between two reactions to Jesus and this question he asks, both his disciples and this blind man Bartimaeus. And so let me pray and, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us as a church. Thank you that we can gather to worship you, to, to sing praises to you. Thank you, Lord, for our freedoms as, as Americans. Thank you for our military, the men and women that are serving our nation, many of them in dangerous places, young men from this church that are in Afghanistan right now. Lord, I pray that you would bless them and protect them. Thank you for the, for the military folks that are in this room that have that have served us well and that are here training at Fort Benning. We pray, Lord, for you to bless them and that they would be a light in dark places. Lord, we do thank you for our country. We pray for our president. We ask that you'd bless him and give him wisdom. Having said that, Lord, as we collect monies for the 
baby bottle boomerang and sound choices, I pray, God, that you would convict our president and the politicians in our nation who are propagating a culture of death and murder and abortion. I pray, God, that you would change their hearts and that, that this horrible practice would be ended. And even as we say that, God, if there's any in this room that have participated in those things, God, let them know that there's mercy and grace in Christ that we are all sinners, and that there is nothing that is beyond your ability to forgive. Lord, we pray for our nation and our our politicians, for our leaders, that you would bless them and give them wisdom. And Lord, we come now to your scripture, and we pray for you to, to do more than just give us a few tidbits to get through the week. Lord, I pray that you would show us Jesus that you would show us the enormity of his work, that we were prisoners captive to sin, and he ransomed us and, and freed us from our slavery to sin and death, and has freed us to be servants, joyful servants of the Most High King. Lord, I pray for men in this room who are sleepy and tired and self-absorbed, passive husbands. I pray that you'd grab them by the scruff of the neck and shake them today. I pray, Lord, for women in this room who, who need encouragement and who need their hearts to be nurtured and to be spoken to by your grace and your power and your love, Lord, that you would speak to them very clearly. I pray for old people, that you would rouse them from, from, from living a life of self-absorption in their retirement. And I pray for young people that are, are living in a culture that, that are pointing all towards it being about them. I pray, Lord, for all of us, young and old and married and single, that, Lord, you would lift our eyes from ourselves and let us see Jesus, our beautiful Savior. And I pray, God, that you would... If there is anyone in this room, and certainly with a crowd this size, there, there are. there is anyone in this room who has not yet trusted in Jesus. Lord, would you make Christ so beautiful, so altogether lovely, that they would be overwhelmed by the beauty that is Jesus and his work, and they would turn from trusting in false beauties, and they would turn and trust in Jesus even today. Lord, would you do that for your glory, I pray. And for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read, starting in verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So there's been a bit of a transition since, remember, in Mark chapter 8, when Peter confessed Christ, things... Things turned in the Gospel of Mark. It went from Jesus displaying his power and authority over sin and sickness and demons and waves and wind to now Jesus being more specific about teaching who he is and what his mission is and now heading to Jerusalem with the intent to offer himself as a sacrifice. And they were going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So there's this tension in the air. I think that people knew, obviously, that something was up, that Jesus already twice before had, and we'll see it again for a third time, predicts his death, and that he will die and rise again. And he's going to Jerusalem to do this. And so 
There's this sense there between his disciples and I think the people that are following that Jesus is going to die. And so there's this tension and and nervousness, kind of like, you know, you know there's going to be a rumble. Something's going to happen. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Verse 33, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus clearly, obviously, is speaking about himself. There's a couple things that I want us to see there. That Jesus, for the third time, has predicted his death and his resurrection. So, So know this. This is very critical in understanding who God is and understanding the gospel, that Jesus' death was not just voluntary, it was planned by God himself. In fact, in Isaiah 53, this beautiful Old Testament prophecy about the suffering servant, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Later on in the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter preaches a message on the day of Pentecost. By the way, today in our church calendar is the day of Pentecost. Peter preached this message on the day of Pentecost thousands of years ago. He said in Acts chapter 2 that it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to deliver Jesus up for his people. Know that the cross was voluntary and planned and it is central and primary to his mission. So friends, there's all sorts of implications we could take just exploring that. Know that even the greatest evil act in the history of the world is underneath the providence and sovereign plan of God to turn around for the good of his people. Jesus lays his life down voluntarily. Verse 35 And James and John, listen to this now. Jesus has just told them for the third time that he's going to die and rise again. And this is strangely encouraging. Listen to this, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Good timing, James and John. I mean, come on, let's just take that in. So I think they were listening to Jesus. Clearly, they were to some degree misinterpreting what Jesus was saying. They heard him say that he was going to die and rise again. So they have some notion probably there. But notice that they're still just so self-consumed. Doesn't this just speak to the consumerism that rests and resides in all of us? I mean, they're, they're hanging out with Jesus here for a few years at this point now, and he's given them the third prediction of his death and resurrection, and the, the, the thing that they have to say to them, him is, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Don't we, don't we have that attitude so often, similarly? And, and we don't just bring it to God. I mean, certainly, I think we bring it to God. But we bring it to each other. We bring it to churches. We bring it to our marriage. I want you to do whatever I want you to do because the, the planets and everything in my universe rotates around my, my belly button. Oh. And then in verse 36, listen to this. I mean, you can almost just picture Jesus sort of laughing and crying almost, just 
not wanting to know whether to pull his hair out or laugh or slap them or shake them or, I mean, the restraint of Jesus here. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So what, what's, what's going on here in, this, in these few verses? Jesus is telling them, listen, I, I think they clearly obviously misunderstand. They, they think that they're ready. I think that they think still that there's going to be sort of this political fight and whether they clearly understood what Jesus was saying about his resurrection, his death and resurrection, I don't know that we can be totally sure. But they're sort of ready for the fight. They're good soldiers. We're able. We're going to do this. In the Old Testament, the, the notion of facing the cup is, is the cup is, is really bound up in the Old Testament with God's wrath. In fact, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the cup is, is, is referred to directly as the, the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus is saying here that, that, that what he's going to do in his death is not just to lay down his life as, as a sort of example, but he's going to lay down his life as a substitute. He's going to bear something in his death, and what he's going to bear is the very wrath of God the Father. And so he says, this, this is, Jesus is saying this, this cup that I'm going to drink, is the wrath of God, his justice for human rebellion. And and the baptism that he's going to go through, again in the Old Testament, this notion of baptism is this sense that you're going under the waters of judgment, but you come through the water. So Jesus is saying, I'm not just, by saying that he's going to face this cup and this baptism, it's not just that he's going to die, but he's coming through the judgment waters of of baptism. And so in, in, in a sense... There's no way that we can face that, obviously. Jesus, once and for all, is the one who who faces that wrath for us. But in another sense, Jesus does tell these disciples, even in their ignorance, well, yes, to some degree you are going to, to drink this drink that I'm going to drink and be baptized with this baptism. And so what is, what is Jesus saying there? I think he's saying that it, they should and they should prepare themselves like every Christian should. And I don't think he's just speaking to James and John that we, being followers of Christ, are going to face trials and sufferings in this life. In fact, years later, Peter would write this letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 4. He writes these words about, about what Christians should expect to face when they follow this Jesus who suffered for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, suffer for God's name. Don't suffer for your own foolishness. And then in verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to once and for all bear this wrath of, of God, the penalty of sin for you. And I'm going to come through it in, in the resurrection. And likewise, you're not going to suffer to bear God's wrath. I've done that once and for all and removed it. But to be my followers, you should expect in this life trial and suffering and tribulation and difficulty. And in fact, James and John themselves both die very difficult deaths. Here's just a quick question. Do the trials, the sufferings that maybe we all go through, do we see them as something that God is using to conform us to Christ's likeness? Or do we, in the middle of those trials, waste our suffering by wondering why God has given us over to them? That's just a, a quick question. I think maybe I am prone to waste my suffering, you know, to, to sort of even be self-absorbed, to stay stuck on the question, you know, I want you to do whatever I want you to do. And then when I go through something difficult, I, instead of seeing maybe how I'm glorifying God in this, I, I waste my suffering. Well, let's keep going in verse 41. So these two have come and asked Jesus rather selfishly for position and power. And word got out amongst the rest of the crew. <laughs> they were naturally upset. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I, I love that because all of these, I, as a pastor, there's all these organizational leadership books, you know, how to manage a team. And listen, by the way, there's no, I, there's no I'm, I'm not setting you up for some sort of, you know, clandestine reference to, you know, disunity amongst the Crosspoint staff team. But, I mean, it's kind of helpful. All these, this, this, this is worshiping of leadership in America, you know? All these books about, and Jesus' crew is mad at each other. I, I'm, I'm just strangely encouraged by that. Thank you very much. That's just for me. I'm just, okay. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant. My bottom, but the point I'm making is that there's, like, we should not expect utopia and kumbayanas in this life. You know what I mean? This world is broken. We shouldn't be surprised by sin in the camp. Even the 12. I mean, the, this, this church is broken. Your pastors are broken. You're broken. Welcome to the merry band of broken people. That was for me, obviously, not for you. You didn't. You didn't. And when they, the ten heard it, they began to send emails to each other and to call each other, gossiping about one another and the audacity of these other two cats. James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came, and here's the verse now, verse 45. This, I believe, is the center, the high point of the book of Mark, and one of the high points of the entire Bible, verse 45. 
For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That one word there, which is so critical to a right understanding of the gospel and the point of Jesus' mission, in fact, the whole Bible, that one word, ransom, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that word ransom mean? Well, we could, again, spend much of our time today, we could spend a whole sermon series unpacking the implications of the meaning of the word ransom. But let me just give you two clear implications. One is this idea of ransom, this word ransom, is, carries with it this idea that we, we are captives. There are prisoners that need to be set free. That's why the ransom is necessary. And so, so do, do you understand, is, is that your doctrine of man? Do, is that the doctrine that you have about mankind? Well, well, it should be because it's biblical. We, you see, the doctrine of mankind is, the doctrine of sin is, is that we are captive to sin. We are prisoners. We, we have no hope in and of ourselves. We, our sin, our rebellion against God, whether it is obvious and public or whether it is inward and self-righteous and religious, has, as the Bible is clear, separated us from God rendered us completely unable to make ourselves right with God or please God in any way. And we are, as Ephesians says, as Psalm says, as Colossians says, dead in our sin. We are bound, we are bound and captive to sin. No key, no chance for escape. Without hope in this world, as Ephesians says, we are captive, we're prisoners. And Jesus comes not on a help mission, Not on an improvement mission, but on a rescue and resurrection mission to take dead captives, free them from sin, and resurrect them to life. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. So there's that first notion that we're prisoners. And and then, then secondly, is that Jesus paid for our sins. That there's there's this aspect where Jesus substitutes himself, he gives his own life as a payment, a ransom for the freedom of the captives. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2, which I think will help us understand this idea of Jesus being a ransom better. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to this. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So so that verse is saying that God is making Jesus, God the Son, perfect through suffering. Now, of course, Jesus is already perfect, has been perfect, is eternally preexistent, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But... God takes on flesh, Jesus takes on flesh and lives a life and stores up righteousness in the flesh and then lays down that perfect righteous life on the cross and suffers. And so Jesus, in redemptive history, becomes a man and suffers and wins back righteousness that we have all lost. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That means that, that God becomes man to sanctify those who lost their holiness in their sin. Verse 14, skip down. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, ransom, redeem, save, rescue, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, listen to verse 17. This is so critical in understanding why God had to become man to rescue us. I mean, couldn't God have just snapped his fingers and made everything kind of like a shook in the giant heavenly etch-a-sketch? Ah, they messed up. Let's just, let's just shake this puppy and start over. No, for the maximum display of his glory and to be consistent with his holiness, God had to do it this way, verse 17. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Or in other words, the wrath-bearing substitute, turning God's wrath into God's favor for the sins of the people. So Jesus, as our ransom, is God who's become man to bear the weight of God's penalty against man. So, so think of it this way. Eighteen and a half years ago, um, well, actually it was 19 years ago when Jennifer and I were engaged. We were engaged on May 29th, 1994. And then shortly after that, the Army sent me across the other side of the world. And I played in the sand for a while, and then I came back right before we were married. And when we came back, I remember, I don't know if it was before been 20 years, babe, I'm sorry, but sometime around there, we had to pick out something called China. Now, <laughs> honestly, honestly, I had never heard the word China in reference to anything other than the country. And so her and her mom were talking about how we had to pick out a China pattern. And so, okay, that made absolutely no sense to me. But soon enough, I found myself at in a store in the mall, which I would have never gone into, like a section in the mall. And the thing that struck me about the store where we picked out our, 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 like our china pattern, which, by the way, young guys, what that is, is it's, it's, it's plates. It's things that you buy, that people give you for your wedding, that you then put in a cabinet that you actually never use again, but it's really, for some reason, it's really important. And we had to pick out a pattern, right? And so we go to this department store, I think here in town, Dillard's or Parisian's or someplace, and there's all of these really expensive plates precariously perched on some little stand, right? I mean, this is obviously not a place men should be. <laughs> and there's, there's these little signs, you know, I can remember. Maybe they don't do this anymore, but maybe you just look at it all on a catalog. But it was like, if you break it, you buy it, right? If you break it, you buy it. And here's what happened in the fall. We broke, we broke humanity. Adam and Eve and you and I, we broke it. We broke it. We broke the fine china of God's creation. We broke it. But here's the dilemma. Broken plates can't put themselves back together again, can they? And, and the point of when, hey, if you break my valuable plate, 
You must replace it with a brand new, exact same copy of that. And so, so think about the divine logic of this. This is beautiful. It's not enough for God just to shake the etch-a-sketch and say, oh, well, the plate was broken. I'll just make it come back together. I guess he could have done that. But God, he, he, he recreates humanity in its perfection when Jesus comes. He reverses the effects of the fall. He redeems, he restores a new plate, a beautiful, perfect human is now there saying no to sin where we said yes to it. Restoring human righteousness. So, so it's, it's necessary for Jesus to be both completely man and completely God because no mere man, listen, no mere man can pay the penalty for the broken plates of all people throughout all ages who would be God's people. So so you see the divine necessity that Jesus be man, really man, perfect man, the, 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 the new man, but to be completely God because he's the only one that can bear the weight of the penalty for all of our broken plates and restore human righteousness in the flesh so that we can be righteous again. Do you see that? That's why, friends, by the way, it's so important that you understand the nature of Christ, that he's fully man and fully God. That's why uh, oftentimes cults rise up on this one heresy of the nature of Jesus. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians, because they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity. That's why Mormons are not Christians, because they don't believe they, if you lose the divinity of Jesus, you lose the saving power of the gospel. Jesus is not just man, he's God. He's not just God, he's man. And do you see there that Jesus is saying that the God-man, we read it in 1 Timothy 5, this chapter 2, verse 5, Reynolds read it this morning, that the God-man comes. He's the one mediator between God and man, the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Right there, the whole point of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God reconciling a lost people for himself through the perfect God-man, Christ Jesus, right there, bound up in one sentence by Jesus. And so do you see that that anchors everything that Jesus tells these people because it's important that we understand that point before we run with the point that Jesus made before that. Because what, he, what does he say? He says, listen, he says, you guys are lording authority. You're wanting to be great. And you're wanting this for yourselves. And I'm turning the economy of human relation upside down. And I'm saying, no, true greatness is giving yourself up. But it's not just based on a sort of moralism or do Jesus is not just saying, just follow my example of laying down your life and do good to others. No, he's saying, he's saying, you can't just merely follow my example. Before you can follow my example, I have to be your ransom. I have to free you because you're a captive, incapable of following my example until I die for you, redeem you, resurrect you, make you new, and then you can carry out the implications of being a servant to all people. So do you see the message of the cross is not, oh, lay down your life like Jesus as an example. See, the the cross is not merely an example, although certainly it is that. Before it's an example, it's a ransom paid. It's a substitute where God substitutes himself for man. This is what John Stott, a British scholar, said, huge figure in the Christian church in the 
1900s, that sounds like so long ago, but I mean, <laughs> the 1900s, like it was a century ago, but actually it was a century ago. But anyway, you, you understand my dilemma for those of you that are over 20. John Stott, huge figure in American and British evangelicalism, has this beautiful quote. Listen to this. The concept of substitution, meaning Jesus substituting himself, the God-man substituting himself, may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where God deserves to be. God puts himself where man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. So friends, do you see? Do you see how important that is? And do you see if you miss that? You miss the whole gospel, and you can sort of build out a sort of self-help message and say, oh, well, Jesus' point here is be like me and serve other people. No, that's an implication of the gospel. That's, that's what Jesus is saying after he makes the more central point that he died and ransomed us, from death, ransomed us from death to life. And because he has released the cage, he's released the doors of the prison and has set us free, now we can give ourselves away. And so do you see how he turns it upside down? That little, that little uh, phrase there, he says that in verse 44, that we should be slaves of all notice. There, how he turns the economy on its head. James and John came to him saying, we want to be lords and masters. And Jesus is saying, I am freeing you from sin, which you've been a slave to, so that you can be a slave to righteousness and joy and giving your life away. I'm not freeing you so that you can be an American Christian and build out a life of comfort around your belly button. I'm freeing you to give your life away, which is really the essence of true joy in Christ-likeness. I could go on, but I think you've got my point. Let's keep going. Verse 46. I hope you've got my point. Maybe you haven't. Goodness gracious. That's the heart of the gospel right there. Verse 46. Let's go. So, so here's, so here's a, we're going to shift now. Jesus has interacted with James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Give us power and position. No, boys, that's not the gospel. And then the end of chapter 10, this beautiful contrast. And when they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Verse 51, and Jesus said to him, does this question sound familiar? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Notice a couple things. Notice, first of all, the fickleness of the crowd. This just jumped out to me. Notice the fickleness of the crowd. (laughs) Verse 48, many rebuked him, 
telling him to be silent. But then Jesus calls out for him, and they say, take heart. So it's like, be quiet, shut up. Oh, 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 he wants you now. I mean, listen, young people, the crowd is fickle. The crowd is fickle. They went from trying to shush him to trying to be his escort to Jesus within the matter of seconds. The crowd is fickle. But notice Bartimaeus' boldness. I mean, I am just struck by the words he cried out. There's no rehearsed prayer. There's no religious speech. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cried out, and there's this one little detail there which I think is interesting. He threw off his cloak. For a beggar, a cloak would have been really everything. He would sit on that cloak. It would be sort of his security. I think there's some symbolism there, and I don't want to take this too far, but I think there's just a little nugget there uh, that's just displaying Bartimaeus's just abandoned to, to sort of leave his security and to go to Jesus even before Jesus had healed him. He throws off his security before Jesus even asks him the question. So to end this, let me just offer a contrast between James and John and Bartimaeus. James and John came to Jesus demanding that he do for them whatever they asked. Bartimaeus came to Jesus and cried for mercy. James and John asked for power and position and prestige. Bartimaeus simply asks to see. James and John are thinking about what they can receive from Jesus in all his glory, but really all of their glory. And Bartimaeus throws away his security, his shame, before he received anything, without guarantee, and goes to Jesus. So the question for us, I think, is the same. What do we want Jesus to do for us? Are we more often like James and John? Well, Jesus, I'm glad you asked. Here's my list. Or do we see ourselves more like a humble beggar? Jesus, have mercy on me. Oh, that God would give me eyes to see myself like Bartimaeus. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we come to you now, I pray that we would see the beauty of the gospel. I pray that you would just put spiritual ammonia underneath our nose. 
smelling salts to snap us into clear vision to see that the message of the gospel and the message of Christianity is not follow Jesus merely as an example. He did this, so you must do this. No, before that imperative comes the, comes the great declaration that the prisoners are set free. The prisoners are set free by the God-man Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, before we try and do anything for you, let us see Jesus and cry for mercy like this beggar Bartimaeus. Lord, may we see Jesus, the captain of our salvation who was made perfect through suffering, the God-man who who came from heaven and took on flesh and restored righteousness in the flesh and then laid down his life on the cross and absorbed and satisfied and completely extinguished our punishment and then rose again in victory over sin and death. As Colossians says, he he triumphed over the law and its demands and sin and he made a public spectacle of it and rose again in victory and he swung open the gates of the prison doors he he blew the doors off the prison and 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 brought the captives out god let us see that that our greatest need is is not to just think less of ourselves and more of others as as important as that is but primarily our greatest need is to be ransomed from our captivity And Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not seen that or trusted in that, God, would you make that picture of the the captain Jesus breaking open the prison door of their captivity, would you blaze into their mind's eye a picture of that victorious king who comes to defeat every habit, every moment of depression, every, every broken aspect of their life, every anxiety, everything. He comes to break that prison door and release them to life in you, not so that we can get more stuff and prestige and power, but so that now we are free, finally, not just from sin, but from ourselves, so that we can give our lives away glorious joy serving others. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not seen that gospel, who's not trusted in that gospel, Lord, would they right now look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. You're beautiful. I trust you. You are my only hope. Friend, if that's you, look to Jesus even now. And as you're looking to Jesus, you're turning away simultaneously from from yourself, from, from the things that have held you captive. Look to him right now and say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. Forgive me. I come to you. Do that even now, friends. And for the rest of us, Father, that have already trusted in Jesus, whom have been set free from prison, but some crazy reason we like to sneak back in that prison cell and eat those crumbs again God would you remind us again of our freedom to come out of that jail cell that you freed us from and let us live in light of your glory and grace so that we can give our lives away 
for our joy and your glory. God, would you do that even now? And as we respond to you and worship God, stir our affections. The captain of our salvation, our victor, our ransom, Jesus. And I pray it in his glorious name. Amen. Well, friends, let's all stand.